Hey, what's going on, everyone? Before we begin this week's episode, I wanted to extend a big thank you to our sister podcast, Science Night, hosted by James Reed, without whom this episode wouldn't have been possible. If you enjoy this episode, please head on over to Science Night's feed for another Halloween spectacular, where James and I discuss, among other things, premature burials, grave robbers, and the macabre fascination with death during Victorian England. Stick around, and at the end of our discussion, you'll hear a dramatic reading of an excerpt of Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial. It's very pulpy, and the entire episode came out so well. So please, support our programs on the River Power Podcast Mill Network, and we look forward to seeing what we can cook up for you all next time. Enjoy the show. and salutations, Pulp listeners. Cody Sullivan here with a very special Halloween treat for you little beasties. I'm joined tonight by Christopher Goulet, a fellow podcaster and good friend, and the man of the hour, James Reed, another friend and creator of the podcast Science Night. Gentlemen, please say hello. Hi. Hello. If this is your first time tuning into Pulp from Beyond the Veil, uh, allow me to forewarn you that we're doing something a little different today in the spirit of of Halloween. James, what are we talking about tonight? So tonight we are going to talk about cryptids. And before we get like too ahead of ourselves, I think we have to do some defining. And why don't we talk about what a cryptid is and what a cryptid isn't? Mm. Does that sound like a good start to this adventure? Yes, lay it on me. I am ready. A cryptid is something that marks the boundary between wilderness and civilization. And I think it's important to remember that it is either protecting something from or for a group of humans. And this is where we get things like the Sasquatch or the Yeti that is, uh, that is patrolling the wilderness and, and keeping either people uh, safe or away from that area. The other thing they can be is a cautionary tale. And this is where something like the Jersey Devil comes into play, where it, it serves as like a colonial era warning about a bad behavior or children wandering off too far into the woods. And it's also fun, fun way uh, for society to exert its morals onto a group. I love uh, Which that. is just great, yeah. <laughs> I love having morals exerted upon me. Everyone's favorite thing is to have somebody else's values impressed upon them. <laughs> I, I love it. In fact, every morning I wake up and, and look up which ones I need to impress upon myself. And like the last thing a cryptid can be, and this is my favorite part, and I think it's everyone's favorite part, is it's a way to add mystery to the world. A lot of people think like, we've figured everything out with this world. It's like completely demystified and science can can answer everything. But that's not very fun. Like, it's not true either. Mm. Add, a, add a little bit of variety to the life. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get scared when you're walking through the forest at night if you don't believe there's an eight-foot-tall uh, gorilla man sort of breathing down your neck behind you the entire time. 
Sure. Or hundreds of very small creatures. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I, I think in that vein, we also need to mention what a cryptid is not. Okay. This is also where I'm going to have the most boundary issues, I assume. This is where most scientists are going to be like, uh, a real thing is what a cryptid is not. But I have three distinct uh, versions of when that statement is just not accurate. You know, we've heard of the Kraken. It is like a a well-level rum. But it is also like this thing that would swallow up ships. And we're like, well, that's just something that we've seen in stories. Uh, But it, it turns out it was probably the giant squid. And like the sea serpents that mark the boundary of the earth are probably oarfish. And even our favorite thing to talk about, our smelliest cryptid to talk about, the Bigfoot. There's plenty of evidence that that may have been early human interactions with a giant orangutan. Think about like the combination of, a, of, of an orangutan and a gorilla that was about 10 feet tall called Gigantopithecus that did overlap with humans in Southeast Asia. So it's really easy to discount all of cryptids, cryptozoology, and just weird monsters that live out on the fringe as something that could never exist. But we have three and more instances of of these things being totally real. Right. I think it's pretty interesting, too, the idea that this giant orangutan gorilla hybrid that stalked our our distant ancestors that was passed down in the collective unconscious to like maybe today through lore and story and that it still exists in some way but yet it's gone through such a long game of telephone that certain things about it have changed the way to think about it is if you were to stumble upon an up to 10 foot orangutan in the jungles of Southeast Asia, far back into our past, uh, you would not shut up about it. That is absolutely correct. And I would need new underwear. I would tell literally <laughs> everyone. Yeah. So when thinking about cryptids, I like to tell the quote from Bernard Hovelmans, who is kind of lauded as the father of cryptozoology, and he is not, like, completely unproblematic. He said some wild stuff. Ah, a white powerful man in the 20th century. Huh. (laughs) Whatever could you mean, James? Unbelievable. But he states that a cryptid is truly singular, unexpected, paradoxical, striking, emotionally upsetting, and thus capable of mythification. 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 That's sort of what you were talking about, how there's a need to have certain things unexplained in our world that we live in today, where we believe that we know all the answers to things. There is very little mystery, and so the obsession with so many cryptids really does point to a need for mystery, a need for this mystical experience to exist. I think you're right, and I think that there's a a base desire for humans to want to fill in what we can't understand with relations to things that we kind of can. But I also think that it's a desire to reach out and hope that there's something beyond this moment. I think there's an element of of desire beyond a need to fulfill. I think humans want to build some sort of a bridge to an unknown that's equally as potent, which is what, you know, those two forces either running away from something we don't know or running towards something we wish we did create a pretty powerful incentive to create these myths. 
Everyone in town, including me, grew up listening to the stories about the forest on Eagle's Bluff. That's all anyone ever called it. The forest. Some geriatric group of town elders probably decided a couple generations ago that if they gave it a name, acknowledged the mystery, that there'd be no end to the weekend convoys of daredevil college kids and local skeptics heading up into those woods. I'm sure they thought they were keeping everyone quite safe. And now I know they were. It had been over four years since someone disappeared up on that bluff, and only two years before that, three others went missing as well. The papers didn't write much about them, none of them were locals, just hikers on the Great Northern Trail, and all were presumed to have died meeting some unfortunate end, be it starvation, exposure, a fall, or predators. The local PD issued warnings about hiking in unfamiliar terrain and expressed their condolences. They refused to comment on questions suggesting possible connections to the disappearances, and everyone in town knew that when it came to Eagle's Bluff, the less questions, the better. Well, a co-worker of mine from the shop headed up on the Great Northern Trail up to Eagle's Bluff and had been missing for four days. He told me he was going to check around the outskirts of the forest to look for chaga. He'd always been a real nature hippie kind of guy, foraging for herbal remedies. Truth be told, I didn't really care for him that much, but after the local PD declined to mobilize a search and rescue attempt, I decided I'd come up and take a quick look. I guess you could say I was something of a local skeptic myself. I stepped off the trail and into the forest, intending to stay close by and be brief in my search. After all, if he was still up here, he'd have to be close to the trail. Superstitions or otherwise, the trees here were thick, and their roots snaked along the forest floor, making the simple act of walking a perilous endeavor. With each step deeper into the woods, it was as if the trees grew nearer together, denser, blocking out more and more of that little light that trickled through the canopy, that blue-gray light that signified twilight. Had I really been in the forest that long? I had to hurry if I wanted to make it back to the trail before nightfall. Waves of self-embittered thoughts battered my anxious brain. Somehow, I must have gotten turned around, and I was unsure which direction I had come. The word lost, I whispered silently in my mind as the greedy trees drank up the waning sunlight around me. Science and scientists, there is kind of the thought that we are going to be the ones to throw water on the fire of anything fun. A scientist is never going to be the person that says, like, the unexplainable is not out there and that the impossible is not possible. That's not necessarily, like, scientific thinking. That is, like, the thinking of a boring person. But most scientists that I know are kind of fun, and they will talk about why does the Loch Ness Monster exhibit these characteristics? And why does Bigfoot uh, look like this? How did these things get into our folklore? So I thought we could do a fun little activity and create our own cryptid. Kind of 
put our stamp on the folklore of our society and maybe exert it into the future zeitgeist so that 25,000 years from now, they're talking about the thing that we create tonight as real. And maybe even it becomes like the mascot of an NHL team because they love to throw cryptids onto their, their merch. Oh my God. I'd be honored. So what is the first step uh, in making this cryptid? What building blocks are we working with? We have given you the clay, and we are just humble students. Uh, now we are watching the master at work here. What, I, what is I've the first thing? I've never created a cryptid before. I've I never feel... created a cryptid. I'm sure you've created hundreds, James. Please walk us through it. First thing we need to decide, is this a solitary animal, or does it live in groups? I can't think of many cryptids that do live in groups. I mean, you do ah, hear story about what? Bigfoot families. Yeah, but like, that's the big yeah, one. But, that, 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 the, name another. Uh, more Bigfoots. Like, <laughs> more and more and lots of them. Yeah, you know, often in these stories of cryptids, they're talking about just throngs of big feet. Well, I mean, <laughs> think about all of fairy lore and, like, these idea that there are realms of, of entire kingdoms of, of others that are around us, but we can phase in and out of seeing and, and understanding. Sure. Colonies of fairies or dragons gnomes. or goblins or gnomes or dwarves or, you know, sure. like, there, there's... I'm not sure if, if any of those totally qualify as cryptids per se, but they kind of are, you know, I'm going to put them all sort of generally into this big category of like fantastic fae other and say that like there's definitely this idea that there can be societies, these kinds of creatures. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that is much more of like the solitary creatures that I think about. Like there is one presumable Jersey devil. There's, not multiple uh, Jersey Devils that I know of, or there's one Mothman. The Mothman, exactly. There's one Nessie that we know of. Yeah, well, yeah, we, yeah. we don't really know of it, but that we talk about it, we all think there is the same. Champ. There is Champ. Yeah, there's not Champs. And for those of you listening who do not live in Vermont, Champ is the Nessie-like creature that lives in Lake Champlain on the border of Vermont and New York. And he would prefer that you only come during October and maybe a little bit of September as well. And maybe like in 2022. Yeah, also maybe not Or, or quarantine for 14 <laughs> days at yeah. least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow the governor's orders and... So one clarifying thing, when I say solitary, I do not mean like the only member of its species. Uh, we're just talking about like its sure. day-to-day. Like the mode in which you might encounter this creature. What do you think, Cody? Many or one? If we're creating a creepy, scary cryptid, I think there's something scary about being alone with one other thing. Obviously, it's very scary to stumble across a colony of Bigfoot, Big Feet, but it's also really scary when you're the only living creature standing next to that Mothman and it's looking at you and you're looking at it. It's a very surreal, very personal thing. And if you're alone while it happens then who's gonna believe you i'm gonna go with your opinion exclusively for the creation of the sentence let's be real if we're creating a cryptid (laughs) (laughs) which we are (laughs) so with a, a solitary animal We're talking about instances when resources are scarce. That would be the reason that these animals would have to spread out 
Um, and they would coexist for short amounts of times, mostly for intimate purposes. Um, examples of this category of creature would be bears, orangutans, and most large cats, although lions just throw the entire thing out of disorder because they're all in large groups. But think like cheetahs and jaguars and that sort of thing. Second thing we're going to talk about is secondary sexual characteristics. Ah, uh, that's my primary concern. Most of the things that we think about as being, like, especially ferocious, like a really large size, or those, like, huge canine teeth, or big antlers and horns, and even, like, something that, that has, like, an evocative smell, uh, even hyperaggression, those are usually things to show off to a mate that I am worthy of passing my genes on. So let's put our genes together. Huh. Biggest teeth in the jungle. I want... I think our creature should spray. Okay. Oh. What okay. gender are we talking about? Are we talking about, like, Dilophosaurus? Mm, I would prefer if it was not from the mouth. I feel like non-oral <laughs> <laughs> spraying is definitely uh, another level of icky. I could get behind some sort of terrible olfactory uh, uh, yeah, sensation like, while being around it due to its spraying from its gland sac. I think that I'm that's... always I'm always really fascinated in in science fiction when aliens communicate like this this kind of space where it's almost like ants. It's not telepathic, but it's through this like context of of like smells and tones blended together. Have you ever killed like a bunch of ants? I accidentally, not that I would ever go out of my way. <laughs> Uh, but like it smells weird right like, sure. like when you right like when you kill ants yeah. it smells weird i don't know why but it does what is that what is that somebody smarter than me could probably tell us but but this idea that there's this this implicit like a warning like, system smell and musk that kind of comes over you that's something they talk a lot about in bigfoot encounters too like there's this distinctive musk and presence that goes along with an animal of that like strength and and you know also primate like uh attribute not that this should be a primate I just think it should be stinky. No, I think that what you say is good for this cryptid because another thing that people can describe about their strange encounter, like, you know, we're, we're going back to Bigfoot again with the, with the smelly Bigfoot thing, but people always describe that smell and that that's different. It's something that they haven't smelled before. Right. It's like a showstopper. They catch a whiff of it. And then they're like, okay, something is different. When I was hiking back there, I didn't smell this thing, and now I'm smelling it here. It can alter your perception of the place that you're in. If, you, if you're if you on a hike or if you're out in the woods or you're in somewhere you don't understand or haven't been before, and you, like, double back on that space and it smells different, like, that's going to be a very jarring experience. And it's totally in line with a solitary animal. Bears, large cats, they have lots of ways of marking their territory with scent. It's a good way for them to find each other, but it's also uh, a good way for them to not find each other if that is what they're looking for. So scent is going to play a big role in this uh, this animal's uh, existence. Um, if they're going to put kind of like the caloric demand on creating these scents, then it's going to be pretty important to it so that's something that we'll keep in mind as we go forward uh, into our next category and we're going to talk about 
diet. Fear. We could go crazy and say that this is a photosynthetic uh, plant-based moving thing, but we're not going to go there. I'm giving you, because I know the two of you, I'm giving you three distinct categories of which you must stay in. Carnivore, herbivore, omnivore. My gut says omnivores are probably the scariest and that's because they're sort of like opportunity resource gatherers they take what's given to them Um, if they stumble across some some berries or some fruit they'll eat that but if they see a person looking rather tasty well they're not going to say no and because this is all just turning into a giant reflection of ourselves we are omnivores and we are the scariest creature on the planet arguably probably Definitely. I want to hold space for the unlikely scenario that an herbivore could be the scariest. Some creature that you don't matter to its needs. You're just an infinitesimal zero of like, well, I don't care if you're here or not, but if you're in my way, I'm going to end you, right? Is that crazy? or I don't know. For some reason, that, that scares me. <laughs> You don't need to eat the animal that you kill to be considered a killer. Hippos are herbivores, and they are the biggest killer outside of mosquitoes in the African continent. And even like a moose or anything defending its territory will run down something. So it doesn't need to eat you to kill you. Right. The moose, that's kind of in the back of my mind, is this moose, this idea that's like, no, I'm just, I'm just omnipresent i don't you just don't matter what do you think cody you're 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 in the omnivore camp still i assume i've put my hat in the omnivore ring sure it presents the least amount of liability we can firmly say it could eat anything so perhaps that satisfies the feeling next to awesome power yeah and it's interesting too because cryptids don't necessarily need to present a clear clear danger um i think that when people see the mothman their first thought isn't that it's going to eat me it's just that it's so strange that it is disturbing so i guess that's a distinction that can be made where the threat of of demise or violence doesn't necessarily have to be there but the strangeness does because it needs to be distinctive enough from just being a kind of animal that maybe you haven't seen, there needs to be something about it that is a little odd. Again, back to that mystifying nature of it. Right, 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 right. So let's move on to senses. We've talked about scent being very important to this animal. I think we can just skip over that scent and just say, like, it's, it does it well. All right, so let's move on to sight. Do we want this animal to live during the day, during the night, or in a low light time of day? So either like dawn or dusk. Obviously, if we're talking about sort of spooky encounters, I think the the cover of darkness uh, lends itself well uh, to these types of stories. But there's also a lot of really cool things that happen when a creature um, develops the ability to become a nocturnal hunter. Um, and that's different than if they were already nocturnal, but if they've maybe changed and become more of a nocturnal hunter due to uh, 
evolution and, and strain of resource in their environment. So what you're talking about is a concept called secondary nocturnality. So at some point in their evolutionary history, a, an animal that lived mostly during the day, uh, which we will call diurnal, for whatever reason, and usually it is resource-based, will become nocturnal. They will, they will live and hunt and feed at night. But they don't like have all the adaptations to do this at first. So this is where you see like the huge eyes of a tarsier. They're usually like compensating for something that the species did not have. And then, you know, the way evolutionary works, that something that is beneficial to the survival of the species just kind of gets exaggerated more and more and more as it goes down. And that's where you get something like a tarsier, where its eye, each eye is as big as its brain. Usually these animals are more susceptible to light. Uh, they're more sensitive to light. Uh, so in the daytime, they just do not function well. Do we want this animal to be what we would consider an ambush hunter? So these are the things that are going to kind of spring out and attack and or like project something so you could consider a cheetah even like frogs and chameleons these are all going to like ambush their prey uh whereas humans uh would be considered persistence hunters because we can run for a long long time and eventually our prey will just die there's nothing scary if the crocodile at the river edge chomps your head off in one bite. You don't even have time to feel fear. I'm sorry. What? That scares me. <laughs> well, it scares you when you think about that happening to you. But if it happens to you, you don't have a chance yeah. to think that way. It's almost like your spirit is like, no, fair play. Like, well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. well done. Yeah, golf clap. Yes, yes. And on the other side... Uh, I mean, did, did you all see that video of that uh, cougar that was, like, chasing oh, that person? Oh, my God. And just walking for towards the, him. For the just... historians that come back and listen to this, uh, this will be in chap chat the, the chapters having to do with um, uh, the middle two weeks of October 2020. So it should some, be somewhere in those 900 pages. The cougar video of a gentleman being pursued by a cougar on a run with just his phone for a full six and a half minutes or so, like, that was a defining, like, uh, like, 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 that, that for me, like, I watched that, and it triggered the deepest of built-in, millennia-long genetic fear. And so that's definitely the feeling we want to we want to uh, engender in this creature. I think so. Again, if we're persistence hunters, there's something scary about not being able to outrun something forever. And to bring up one of my uh, favorite horror movies, um, if anybody's seen It Follows, the the scariest thing about It Follows for me personally wasn't that when it catches you, it it kills you. The scariest thing about It Follows for me is it doesn't matter where you go on the planet, that thing, it, is walking towards you at the same rate and it will always walk towards you wherever you go until it eventually catches you when you give up because you go insane or you pass it on in the movie, you could pass it on. But still, the idea that 
something that is pursuing you is much scarier than something that can just get you. We've gone through almost all the senses. Last thing we talk about is is hearing. It's perception of sound. Um, obviously, it's going to live at nighttime, so it's going to have fairly good hearing. That's just kind of like par for the course for this type of animal we're crafting. But one of the things that could be interesting is, do you have any interest in this being an animal that can echolocate? Yes. I mean, okay. I'm hard, so, hard yes. And, so, and for uh, the listeners who may not know what echolocation is, uh, uh, give us the uh, cliff notes on that. Yeah. So the easiest way to explain it is it's like seeing with your ears. Yeah. Um, it uses sound, uh, specifically the sound waves that it creates that will bounce off of its environment towards its uh, primary auditory cortex which is the part of the brain that that kind of processes all of all of the thing that comes into its ears um and creates like a picture of its surrounding so uh i know this like sounds like the most science fictiony thing but it's pretty common in animals uh, bats whales dolphins um a crazy looking lemur called an eye eye they can all do this with lots of of success. Um, so they're kind of like specialized to do this. Um, as I far feel as like, like 2020 has a little bit of a bat theme going on, so sure. we should we should lean into the echo location. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that humans can can learn to do as yeah. well. I remember hearing a story about a person who was blind uh, at birth who. Uh, managed to get around by themselves, uh, tapping their walking stick along the ground as they went, and again, sort of seeing their environment uh, using sound. Yeah. And just to add another tool to your narrative toolbox, uh, to echolocate, the animal will have to produce a sound that is bounced off. And mm. in... Um, in nature, this is typically something that we probably wouldn't be able to hear, except for an eye eye, which like literally taps its finger on a tree. That is badass. Well, you know what's crazy is that I I really like the idea that tapping an elongated finger on a tree as a form of echolocation could sort of evolve that finger into having sort of like a hard tip, if that makes sense, like a, a very dense like calloused almost finger that uh, would be beneficial for, I don't know, producing a louder noise that would travel farther. So I, I did say like an I.I. and I didn't explain like what that meant. An I.I. is a lemur that looks like nightmare fuel, um, but it has an elongated digit that has no actual like fat or musculature. It is just bone covered with skin with a nail on the end of it. It will use that to tap on trees to find hollows where it can find a bug. Uh, they eat insects and then it will like gnaw into the tree and use that finger like a fish hook to like scoop out bugs, grubs, worms, whatever have you. So like not only is it completely terrifying, but it's quite functional as well. They kind of like fill the niche of a woodpecker. I love that so much and that description of, of yeah, skin no, uh, taut over bone 
with with a nail at the end of it and a long like slender needle like some like like a like a, a thing you know, one one digit that is pointed directly toward you I was traveling for some time in the dark before I came across a gurgling spring from which a small creek flowed. I drank greedily from the source until my throat was numb and my teeth ached. Standing up again, my eyes scanned the tree line in futility. It was then that another wave of dread confusion and panic overtook me as I felt once again horribly, terribly, Alone, alone with nothing but the nocturnal sound of the forest ringing in my head. I turned my gaze back to the creek in hopes to glean some sort of direction from the flow. I saw something small and dark on the ground. My eyes now having adjusted to low light, I was sure it wasn't a rock, and I went over to it cautiously. I thought at first it would be a clue to the whereabouts of my missing co-worker, yet when I was standing over it I recognized the shape and the tail of the deceased creature before me. A large gray squirrel, dead and sprawling on its stomach. The natural progression of decomposition had yet to touch the soft fur, and in the blackness of night I could make out the slick pool of blood near the head of the thing. I flipped it over with my boot to get a better look, and felt my stomach churn. The body of the squirrel seemed to be wholly intact, but the empty socket gaze of its scooped-out eyes bore holes right through me as my heartbeat quickened. Suddenly, from above me, I heard the unmistakable sound of something moving through the trees. Branches snapped, and I could hear some of the smaller twigs land on the forest floor with gentle thumps. Then the smell hit me. It seemed to cling to the gentle breeze that brushed over me, and at first I thought it was just the smell of death that... Perhaps the squirrel had internally begun decomposing, and my agitations merely kicked up the fetid stench from the corpse. Before I could cover my nose, a sickly sweet smell mixed with the death odor. Something like, like ammonia and jasmine flowers mixed with unwashed skin. This new melange of scents made my head swirl as I plugged my nose. There again I heard it. This time something landed in the trees close behind me. I wheeled around and looked up. I thought I saw something perched high in the branches. Something unmoving with a shape undeterminable through the shadows. I took a step closer, never taking my eyes off the thing. A stray moonbeam was liberated from behind the cloud cover just long enough to strike the tree, and what that wretched moonlight revealed stopped my progress towards the tree and held my breath trapped in my throat. It was looking down at me, looking down with eyes like saucers that reflected the moonlight. Loose flaps of skin draped limply over the body of the thing, and I thought I saw the sharp bristle of quills rising from the back of the thing's neck. It stared at me, unmoving, 
and unblinking. It made no noise, but the sweet ammonia death stench was suddenly so pungent I felt my eyes stinging and welling up with tears. When it did move, I was startled by the jerky, almost reptilian movement of its arm. It suddenly raised a spindly hand up to the tree and raised a horribly elongated finger up against the bark. The digit was thin and had the suggestion of skin pulled impossibly taut over bare bone. Just as soon as it came, however, the moonbeam disappeared again behind the clouds and the figure was shrouded in darkness again. And that's when I first heard the tapping. So we need to talk about the habitat in which it lives. Do we want it to be like in the forest, tall grass, uh, near water, in water? Cody, do you have you're, – you're kind of the, the, the writer. Like are you envisioning a specific space already? Yeah, I mean, as we've sort of been talking about this cryptid, uh, I am imagining much more of a forest type, uh, like arboreal environment, and particularly like, yes, like the canopies, like above, like this is the kind of creature that I think um, you mentioned that eye eyes use that elongated finger to tap on trees. Well, that seems like a great way of echolocation that is demonstrated in actual biology and thus would make sense uh, in creating this cryptid that is as scientifically plausible as they come. I, I think if it's going to live in the trees or at least locomote through the trees, there are plenty of uh, real creatures we can look at and see what they use in order to you know, make life easier moving around from tree to tree. What are some of those traits? I'm thinking, basically, we can talk about two specific things. Do we want them to be able to jump, like explosively jump? And do we want them to be able to glide? Because I'm really thinking of something that is like a what we would call a flying lemur, but I would think the better version would be a Kalugo, which is like a really large sugar glider. It is close to a primate, but we've kicked it out of, of the primate group. Uh, and they have like flaps of skin that work like wings, but they have like flaps of skin that will go all the way up to their head. Well, you said, do we want it to jump uh, and do we want it to glide? I, I would say and or. And or. Okay, because I was going to say that the only possible answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to yeah, to no, all, but. Uh, none of the anatomy that would allow one would discount the other. It just it just creates a radius. Yeah. It's not just that it, it could be above you. It's that it could be around you. Yeah. But in thinking about this, if it has to glide, if it is a glider, then it can't weigh particularly very much. So that alone changes the like the biomechanical nature of of this cryptid uh, into being something that might look a little thin and maybe a little elongated. Especially if it's a jumper, then then perhaps it's you know it uses its legs to jump and it also has the ability to glide. 
I don't know, but I would imagine that it couldn't weigh very much, or it couldn't at least be extremely heavy and large. Think of a like a bat, like it's a very nimble creature, but you know maybe sized up and with its, uh, fur is just very sharp. It's got some quills to it, you know. Or even like a human with a wingsuit on. I mean, if we want to be like completely scientific and scientifically accurate, you would just need to make sure that their limbs would be long enough that they could create some form of lift with like a skin flap going between the hand and arm. So this would be a long creature then if it was going to be able to, like long relative to its body. Now just imagine that like with continually, continually uh, stalking you over yeah. a period of, of any time. Yeah. Oof, just something in the darkness jumping from tree to tree. It would also be relatively you. silent because it's not like it's flapping. It's just like yeah. it's just gliding and moving. It's silent until it hits another tree near you. Right. It's following you and you just hear like the well, Yeah, when it, thunk. it wants you to when it like hits, you know, it's like. So this gives you like a couple um, opportunities to. Um, have some twists and turns and I think it also gives you the opportunity of having like getting outside of the forest not necessarily mean that a hundred percent safety is is achieved because gliding um, for a certain amount of time can be achieved oh I love that idea you, you like you kind of you reach the forest edge you make it to the field you get to the edge you kind of collapse because it's like oh finally and like you're not actually safe before i knew it i was running i had no sense of direction no sense of time or how long i had been stuck in these woods the sun had gone down several hours ago and though my most urgent action was to get away from the thing in the tree i had the sense that if nothing else if i should make it until morning i'd be safe in these woods again at least safe from whatever the hell the thing chasing me was. I could hear the creature leaping through the trees behind me, but dared not to turn and look. It didn't seem to matter how far I ran, or how great the distance between the treetops grew. The thing remained in pursuit. In my haste to get away, I nearly sprinted over the edge of an embankment. I managed to halt my momentum a mere step or two before the ledge. I, I caught my breath for a moment and strained my ears against the sound of the night. I turned my eyes back the way I came and saw nothing. Far off in the distance, I heard the tapping start up again. The creature came into view again as it closed the distance. I saw the dark shape leap and soar from one tree to the next, spreading its wretched limbs wide and gliding noiselessly through the canopy. The smell thickened the air again as it landed in the tree closest to me. The strange silhouette of the thing's round head revealed the presence of two great ears on either side. They twitched and flicked in the night air as the creature raised its bony finger to the tree again. Without thinking, I rolled myself down the embankment, upending over and over and over three or more times before I felt the sharp impact 
and pain of landing amongst the rocks. Lying deep within the chasm, about ten feet down, what little light illuminated the forest floor could not penetrate the recess in which I now found myself, banged up, but alive. I sat up and pulled my knees close to my chest, focusing intently on slowing and quieting my breath. I sat in silence in that indescribable darkness for minutes before the tapping started again. And after some time, I heard the sound of the creature disappearing into the trees and away from the embankment's edge. I sat there shivering and in shock, eyes staring wide into the enveloping darkness before eventually slipping into a dreamless slumber. When I opened my eyes again, the coming dawn brought with it feeble light enough to penetrate the chasm in which I sat. There were branches and stones littering the ground where I had landed, and turning my eyes back up to the top of the embankment, I saw various roots of trees protruding from the eroded earthen wall in front of me and behind me. There was... There was something else, too. Something that would have shaken me to my core if I had found it before the events of last night, but now, in my shock, barely registered a wincing look. Sitting propped up with his back against the opposite wall of the embankment was the recently deceased corpse of my co-worker. His gray body was exposed as the tie-dye shirt he had been wearing had been cut off and used to create a makeshift bandage around his thigh for what could only be a broken femur sustained in the fall. The shirt was so soaked in blood, and his cloudy eyes stared blankly upwards towards the sky. I pulled myself to my feet and began the long process of climbing the roots back up the embankment and away from the quarry which had brought me into this nightmare to begin with. While I didn't have a compass, I knew the direction of the rising sun was east. With the forest abutting the western edge of the Great Northern Trail, I finally had a bearing. I would walk towards the coming dawn, away from the blackness of the forest and away from the nightmare stalker that pursued me. Soon enough, I could see the trees thinning out, as they do near the forest's edge, and what's more, the blue-gray light of early morning began taking on increasingly yellow and orange hues as the sun was soon to crest the mountain tops to the east. And that's when I heard the tapping again. This time when I heard the tapping, I knew I was so close to escape. I took off running through the trees towards the sun as the creature glided from tree to tree behind me. Branches raked my face, and more than once I was tripped up by an outstretched tree root. Each time I fell, I picked myself back up and continued my escape. I erupted from the tree line into an open field just as the sun rose above the distant peaks, flooding the valley with golden rays of light. 
when I turned around, I stumbled back in horror. Gliding towards me from the still-shadowed treetops was a grotesque, humanoid creature about the size of a large dog. Its limbs were splayed out wide, and the skin flaps were taut between each limb like a fleshy sail in the wind. Its large eyes were wholly black, and rows of thin, needle-like teeth were bared. A ring of pointed quills surmounted the thing's head like a lion's mane. As the spreading sunlight struck the creature, it became disoriented and landed abruptly on the ground no more than twenty feet away from me. It shielded its eyes with the skin flap of its arm, and when it looked towards me again, I saw the eyes had changed. What were nearly black pits before were strikingly amber, with the tiniest pinprick of a pupil in the center. It tried to take a step towards me, but its movements were clumsy and it stumbled to a stop. It bellowed a final cry, bearing its hideous maw, before thankfully turning its back to me and the sun and began a shuffling peregrination back to the tree line. So I think we've created ourselves a cryptid. We have a stinky omnivore that has the ability to echolocate and glide and jump from tree to tree while living in the canopy. So what I will leave in your very talented hands is the opportunity to craft a tale of suspense and intrigue and horror uh, for this pulp from beyond the veil uh, Halloween spectacular. Oh, thank you very much. I, I'm looking forward to the devilment. Uh, this has been really fun. Um, I would say that the only thing missing is a name. I tell you this story not to frighten you, but to implore your caution when you find yourself amongst the darkened timbers or anywhere else that is firmly in nature's domain. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Strange things. Dangerous things. As for me, my hiking days are over. I'll continue sharing this tale with anyone who will listen. My story of encountering the Eagle's Bluff Tapper.